Section seven of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five The Gift Horse Part two. Next morning my perplexity was cleared. I made an early start, tying some food and a kettle and my slicker to the saddle. McDonough watched me curiously. Leaving your wagon and truck? he inquired. Why, yes, of course. I'll be back for it. I'm going to the E.A. now. Are you a poet? I continued. I've begun a thing, and I handed him some unfinished lines, which I had entitled At Gift Horse Ranch. You don't object to that? Object to what? Why, the title, At Gift Horse Ranch. He took the paper down from his eyes, and I saw that his face had suddenly turned scarlet. He stood blinking for a moment, and then he said, I kinda like to hear it. But that's all there is to hear, so far, I exclaimed, feeling somehow puzzled. He put the verses close to his eyes once more. Then he held them out to me, and stood blinking in his odd, characteristic way. Won't you read them to me? he at length managed to say, I'll not fool you. For yet one moment more I was dull and did not understand. I can't read, he stated simply. Oh, I murmured in mortification, and so I read the lines to him. He stretched out his hand for the scribbled envelope on which I had penciled the fragment. May I keep that? Wait till I have it finished. I'd kind of like to have the start to keep. He took it and shoved it awkwardly inside his coat. I can't read or write, he said, more at his ease, now the truth was out. Nobody ever taught me nothing. But I was not at ease. Well, that stuff of mine is not worth reading, I said. Cards had a meaning for him. Kings, queens, ten spots. These had been the fellow's only books. He went on, never had any folks, you see, to know him, that is. Well, so long till you're back. He turned to his cabin, and I touched my horse. The sorrel had gone but a few steps when I looked over my shoulder, and there stood the solitary figure watching me from the cabin door. Suddenly it occurred to me that, as he had not been able to read my letter to Scipio, he knew nothing of my project. This was why he had manifested no surprise. Do you think, I called back laughing, that your horse can take me to Still Hunt Spring? I am now sure that a flash of some totally different expression crossed his face. But at the time I was not sure. He was instantly smiling. Take you anywhere, he called. Take you to Mexico. Take you to hell. Oh, not yet, I responded, and cantered away. So he thought I would not dare to go alone to Still Hunt Spring. Well, and good. They should all believe it by Friday evening. My cantering ceased soon. It had been for dramatic effect, and as I had before me a long ride, it behooved me to walk the first miles. Yet I was soon up the easy ascent from North Fork, and though my descent to the main river from the dividing ridge was through precipitous red bluffs and accomplished with caution, 
I reached the E.A. ranch, where it used to be twenty-five years ago, in less than two hours. To leave my note there for Scipio took but a minute, and now on the level trail, down Wind River, I made good time, so that before ten o'clock I had crossed back over it above the blue holes, skirted by where the circle fence is to-day, crossed North Fork here, gone up a gulch, and dropped down again upon Wind River below its abrupt bend, and reached the desolate sand gulch. I nooned at the spring which lies, no bigger than a hat, about seven miles up the sand gulch on its north side. This was the starting point of the trail that old Washakie had drawn for me. Here I crossed the threshold of the mysterious and the untrodden. The sense of this heightened the elation which my ride through the bracing hours of dawn had brought me, and as I turned out of the sand gulch it was as if some last tie of restraint had stepped from my spirit, leaving it on wings free and rejoicing. This gleamy, unfooted country always looked monotonous from the bluffs of Wind River, but I found no tedium in it. Its delicious loneliness was thrilled at each new stage of the trail by recognizing the successive signs and landmarks which Washiki had bidden me look for. The first was a great dull red stone, carved rudely by some ancient savage hand to represent a tortoise. Perhaps in another mood, the grim appearance of this monster might have seemed a symbol of menace, but when I came upon the stone just where my map indicated that it was to be expected, I hailed it with triumph. Nor did the caked and naked earth of the region through which I next traced my way dry up my ardor. Gullies sometimes hid all views from me, and again from mounds and rises I could see for fifty miles. Should this ever meet the eye of some reader familiar with Wind River, he will know my whereabouts by learning that far off, but constantly in plain sight to my left, were Black Mountain and Spring Mountain, that I must have been headed toward a point about midway between where the mail camp now is and the pass over to Imbar, that I crossed Crow Creek and, I think, Dry Creek, and that I saw both Steamboat Butte and Teapot Butte at different points. Even to write these names is a pleasure, for I loved that country so and sometimes it seems as if I must go there and smell the sagebrush again, or die. After the tortoise came several guiding signs, a big gash in the soil cut by a cloudburst, an old corral where I turned sharp to the left, a pile of white buffalo bones five miles onward, until at length I passed through a belt of low hills, bare and baked and colored, some pink, like tooth-powder, and others magenta, and entered a more level region covered with sparse grass and sagebrush. Great white patches of alkali acres in extent lay upon the plain. There was no water, Washaki had told me there would be none, and the gleamy waste stretched away on all sides. 
endlessly in front and right and left to long lines of distant mountains full of light and silence. Let the reader who is susceptible to tone combinations listen to the following dissonant, unresolved measures played slowly over and over. Reader's note, here follows a staff of music. Their brooding harmonies will picture or at least convey that landscape better than any words. I think it was really a mournful landscape, grand and grave with suggestion of ages unknown, of eras when the sea was not where it is now, and animals never seen by man wandered over the half-made world. Earth did not seem one's own here, but alien, but aloof, as if through some sudden translation one had lit upon another planet, perhaps a dying one. Yet during these hours of nearing my goal, no such melancholy fancies overtook me. I rode forward like some explorer, and I tried to complete the verses which I had begun at McDonough's. Would I might prison in these words, and so keep with me all the year, some inch of this bright wilderness, of freedom that I move in here. But nothing resulted from it, unless a surprisingly swift flight of time. I was aware, all at once, that day was gone, that the rose and saffron heavens would soon be a field of stars. I had matched, one by one, the signs on my map with the realities around me, and now had reached the map's last word. I was to stop when I found myself on a line between a hollow dip in the mountains to the left and a circular patch of forest high up on those to the right. On this line I was to travel to the right a little way, said Washaki. This I began to do, wondering if the twilight would last, and for the first time anxious. After a little way I found nothing new, the plain, the sagebrush, the dry ground. No more. And again, a little further, it was the same, while the twilight was sinking and disquiet grew within me. Lost I could not well be, but I could fail. Food would give out, and before this the sorrel and I must retrace our way to water at the sand gulch, seven hours behind us. The twilight deepened. Had I passed it? Should I ride in a circle? Rueful thoughts of a dry camp began to assert themselves, and my demoralized hand grew doubtful on the reins when I gradually discovered that the sorrel knew where he was. There was no mistaking the increasing alertness that passed through him. As this extraordinary fact became a certainty, the chasm opened at my feet. The sorrel was trotting quickly along the brink of still Hunt Spring. In broad day I should have seen it a moment sooner, and the suddenness with which, in the semi-obscurity, it had leaped into my view, close beside me, produced a startling effect. The success of my quest did not bring the unmixed pleasure that I had looked for. The dying day, the desolate shapes of the hills, the unbefriending hush of the plain, the odd alertness of the sorrel, 
All this for a while flavored my triumph with something akin to apprehension, and it seemed as if the ravine beneath me had been lurking in a sort of ambush until I should be fully within its power. The Indian legend was now easy to account for. Indeed, I have met often enough, among our unlettered and rustic white population, with minds that would have believed after such a shock as I had just received, that they had beheld the earth open supernaturally. The sorrel's trot had become a canter as we continued to skirt the brink. Looking down I discovered, in shadowy form, the line of tall cottonwoods, spindled from their usual shape to the gaunt figures described as being on stilts. Then the horse turned into the entrance. This steep and narrow trail was barred at a suitable place by a barrier of brush, which I replaced after passing it. A haunting uneasiness caused me to regret that I had not arrived in full daylight, but this I presently overcame. Before we reached the bottom I saw a number of horses grazing down among the trees, and they set up a great running about and kicking their heels at the sight of a human visitor. There must have been twenty or thirty. Lassitude and satisfaction now divided my sensations as I made my way to the spring, whose cool sweet water fulfilled all expectation. My good map served me to the last. With it I lighted my cooking fire, addressing it aloud as I did so, burn, your work is done. I needed no map to go back. I had mastered the trail. In my recovered spirits I quite forgot how much I owed to the sorrel. While picking up dry sticks I stumbled upon what turned out to be a number of branding irons, which were quite consistent with the presence of the horses and the barrier at the entrance. Evidently the place sometimes served as a natural pasture and corral for stock gathered on the round-up and far strayed from where they belonged. Perhaps someone was camping here now. I shouted several times, but my unanswered voice merely made the silence more profound, and for a while the influence of the magic legend returned. With this my fancy played not unpleasingly, while the kettle, or rather the coffee-pot, was boiling. The naturalness of building a fire, of making camp, of preparing a meal, helped common sense to drive out and keep out those featureless fears which had assailed me. What stories could be made about this place by a skilful writer? The lost traveller stumbles upon it enters, suspects himself to be not alone, calls out, and immediately the haunted walls close and he is shut within the bowels of the earth. How release him? Therein would be the story. Or the lost traveller, well-nigh dead of thirst, hastens to the spring amid the frolicsome gambols of the horses. No sooner has he drunk than he becomes a horse himself and the others neigh loud greetings to a brother victim. Then a giant red man appears and brands him. How release all the horses from the spell? 
As I lay by my little cooking fire in the warm night, after some bacon and several cups of good tea made in the coffee-pot, I was too contented to do aught in the way of exploration, and I continued to recline, hearing no sound but the grazing horses, and seeing nothing but the nearer trees, the dark sides of the valley, and the open piece of sky with its stars. My saddle-blanket and slicker served me for what bed I needed, the saddle with my coat supplied a pillow, and the cups of tea could not keep me from immediate and deep slumber. I opened my eyes in sunlight, and the first object that they rested upon was a maroon-colored straw hat. With the mental confusion that frequently attends a traveller upon first waking in a new place, I lay considering the hat and wondered where I was, until at a sound I turned to see the hat's owner stooping to the spring. Instantly Lem Speed, cattleman and owner of a store and bank in Lander, a house in Salt Lake, a wife in Los Angeles, and a son at Yale, was covering me with a rifle. "'Stay still,' was his remark. Not a suspicion that it was anything but a joke entered my head. I lay there, and I smiled. I could not hurt you if I wished to. You will never hurt me any more. Another voice then added, He is not going to hurt any of us any more. Stay still, sharply reiterated Lem Speed, for at the second voice I had half risen. For whom do you take me? I asked. For one of the people we want. I continued to be amused. I'll be glad to know what you want me for. I'll be glad to know what damage I've done. I'll be happy to make it good. I came here last night for—go on. What did you come for? Nothing. Simply to see this place. I've wanted to see it for a year. I wanted to see if I could find it by myself. And I told them who I was and where I lived. <laughs> That's a good one, ain't it? said a third man to Lim Speed. And so, said he, you, claiming you're an eastern tenderfoot, found this place, first trip, all by yourself, across fifty miles of country old-timers get lost in. No, Washakis gave me a map. Let's see your map. I lighted my fire with it. Somebody laughed. There were now five or six of them standing round me. If some of you gentlemen will condescend to tell me what you think my name is, and what you think I have done, we don't know what your name is, and we don't care. As to what you've done, that's as well known to you as it is to us, and you've got gall to ask when we've caught you right on the spot, branding irons and all. Well, I'm beginning to understand. You think you've caught a cattle thief. Horse thief, corrected one. Both, probably, added another. I'll not ask you to believe me any more, I now said. Don't I see the post-trader over there among those horses? No. Very well. Take me to him at Washakie. He has known me for years. I demand it. We'll not take you anywhere. We're going to leave you here. 
and now the truth the appalling incredible truth which my brain had totally failed to take in burst like a blast of heat or ice over my whole being penetrating the innermost recesses of my soul with a blinding glare they intended to put me to death at once their minds were as stone vaults closed against all explanation here in this hidden crack of the wilderness my body would be left hanging and far away my family and friends would never know by what hideous outrage i had perished slowly they would become anxious at getting no news of me there would be an inquiry a mystery then sorrow and finally acceptance of my unknown fate broken visions of home incongruous minglings of loved faces and commonplace objects like my room with its table and chairs rushed upon me had i not been seated i must have fallen at the first shock of this stroke they stood watching me but i began feeling that my very appearance was telling against me while my own voice sounded guilty to my ears but it's not true what's the use in him talking any more to us said a man to Lim speed Lim speed addressed me you claim this you're an eastern traveler you come here out of curiosity you risk getting lost in the hardest country around here out of curiosity but you come all straight because an indian's map guides you only you've burnt it and you're a stranger ignorant that this is a cache for rustlers that's what you claim it don't sound like much against these facts last year you and another man that's wanted in several places and that we're after now you and him was known to be thick you offered to pay his doctor's bill you come back to the country where he's been operating right along and first thing you do you come over to this cache when he's got stolen horses right in it and you ride a stolen horse that's known to have been in his possession and that's got on it now the brand of the outfit this gentleman here represents all out of curiosity we've just found six more of our stock in here said the gentleman indicated by speed i repeated my story in a raised voice i had not yet had time to regain composure i accounted for each of my movements from the beginning until now vehemently reasserting my ignorance and innocence but i saw that they were not even attending to me any longer they looked at me only now and then they spoke low to each other pointing to the other end of the valley and turned while i was still talking to receive the report of another man who came from among the stolen horses then i fell silent i sat by my saddle locking my hands round my knees and turning my eyes first upon the men and then upon the whole place a strange crystal desolation descended upon me quiet and cold the early sunlight showed every object in an extraordinary and delicate distinctness the stones high up the sides of the valley the separate leaves on the small high branches of the cottonwoods the interstices on the bark on lower trunks some distance away 
the fine sand and grass of the valley's level bottom, with little wild rose-bushes here and there. All these things I noticed, and more, and then my eyes came back to my little dead fire and the blackened coffee-pot in which I had made the tea. "'Your friend McDonough,' they had said to me at Washakie, and I had wondered what was behind their reticence when I inquired about him. They were always ready, I bitterly reflected, to feed lies to a tenderfoot, but a syllable of truth about McDonough's suspected dishonesty, which would have saved me from this, they were unwilling to speak. It was natural, of course. Everything was natural. I saw also why McDonough had been so precise in asking which way I expected to travel. Over on Snake River, and in Idaho, the sorrel was in no danger of identification, and therefore I should be safe. But even with the whole chain of evidence—the doctor's bill, the corral, my unlucky tale of a map which I could not prove, and the branding irons with which they believed I was going to alter the legitimate brands, what right had they to deny me the chance I asked? The last two of them now came from the horses to make their report. Five brands, thirty-two head, N lazy Y, bar circle Z, goose egg, pitchfork, seventy-six, and V R. Not one of you, I broke out, knows a word against me, except some appearances which the post-trader will set right in one minute. I demand to be taken to him. Ain't we better be getting along, Lem? said one. Most eight o'clock, said another, looking at his watch. Stand up, said Lem Speed. Upon being thus ordered, like a felon, my utterance was suddenly choked and it was with difficulty that I mastered the tears which welled hotly to my eyes. "'Any message you want to write?' "'No!' I shouted. "'Then let's be getting along,' said the first man. "'Any message I wrote you would not deliver. It would put a rope around your neck, too. And Mr. Lem Speed, with your store and bank and house and wife and son, I hope you will live to see them come to ruin and disgrace." I wish that I had never spoken these weak, discreditable words, but he who has not been tested cannot know the bitterness of such a test as this. A horse was led to me, and I got on without aid, a man on each side of me. Memory after this records nothing. We must have been some time, I think we walked, in reaching the other end of the valley, yet I cannot recall what was spoken around me, or whether or not anything was spoken. I can recall only the sides of the valley passing, and the warmer sense of the sun on my shoulders, and the vivid scent of the sagebrush. What firmness or lack of firmness I might have displayed at the very end, I can never know. Before we halted at the fatal tree of execution, and while my rage was still sustaining me, a noise of rattling stones caused us all to look upward, and there, galloping down the steep trail, wildly waving and shouting to us, was Scipio Lemoyne. It reeled through me. I was saved. 
he plunged into the midst of us at breakneck speed, drew up so short that his horse slid, and burst out furiously, not to my captors, but to me. "'You need a nurse!' he cried hoarsely. "'Any traveling you do should be in a baby-coach!' Breath failed him. He sat in his saddle, bowed over and panting, hands shaking, face dripping with sweat, shirt drenched, as was his trembling horse. After a minute he looked at Speed. "'So I'm in time! My God! I've ridden all night. I'd have been here an hour sooner, only I forgot about the turn at the corral. Here, that's the way I knowed it.' He handed over my letter, left for him at the E.A. ranch. This, with a few words from him, cleared me. All that I had declared was verified. They saw what they had been about to do. "'Well, now, well!' exclaimed one, grinning. "'To think of us getting fooled that way,' another remarked, grinning. "'But it's all right now,' said a third, grinning. "'That's so,' a fourth agreed. "'No harm done. But we had a close shave, didn't we?' And he grinned, too. Lem Speed approached me. "'No hard feelings,' he said jocularly, and he held out his hand. "'But is it a true joke, this American attempt at shirking responsibility under a bluff of facetiousness? It masquerades as humor every day. A pretty mongrel humor, more like true cowardice.' I turned to Scipio. "'Tell this man that anything he wishes to say to me he will say through you.' Speed flushed darkly. Had he kept his temper, he could easily have turned my speech to ridicule. But such a manner of meeting him was novel to a man used to having his own brutal way wherever he went, and he was disconcerted. He spoke loudly and with bluster, you said some things about my wife and son that don't go now. This delivered him into my hands. Again I addressed Scipio. Say that I wish his family no further misfortune. They have enough in having him for husband and father. I think he would have shot me, but the others were now laughing. He's called the turn on you, Lynn. Leave him be. He's been annoyed some this morning. They now made ready to depart with their recovered property. "'You and your friend will come along with us?' one said to Scipio. "'Thank you,' I answered. "'I have seen all that I ever wish to see of any of you.' And then suddenly I folded over and slid like a sack of flour from my horse. It had lasted longer than my nerves were good for. Darkness engulfed me on the ground. They had disappeared when I waked. Scipio and I were the only human tenants of the valley. He sat watching me, and I nodded to him, then silently shook my head at his question if I wanted anything. I lay gazing at the rocks and trees, the tall trees with their leaves gently stirring. It was a beautiful, serene spot and I regarded it with the languid pleasure of a man recovering from a serious illness. We began to talk presently, 
and I learned that they had taken away their stolen horses except the sorrel, which had been left at my complete disposal. But from that party I would accept no amends. I would ride the sorrel back to Wind River, and then I would send a check to the proper person, as if I had hired the horse. This intention, I may say at once, that I duly carried out. Scipio upbraided me with the spirit I was showing. They had meant no harm to me, he argued. They were doing their best now. But I turned upon him. Oh, their best! Do you think they'll not break out in a new place, condemn some other man who looks guilty to their almighty minds? I asked to see the post-trader. Don't forget that. There's got to be a lynching where there's no law, but— To these unfinished words Scipio could find no answer, but he remained unconvinced, muttering that tenderfeet shouldn't monkey with this country by themselves. And in this sentiment I heartily concurred. We spent the day and night at Still Hunt Spring. There was nothing to call us away, and I found my physical powers more inclined to rest than to a long ride. Scipio dried out his clothes beside the spring, and refreshed his lank body from the perspiration and dust which had covered it. He narrated how it had been whispered that the cattlemen were on the eve of demonstrating, how McDonough's practices and associates had been gradually ascertained, how it was known that Still Hunt Spring had become a hiding place for stolen stock. Therefore my bragging letter, written in a spirit so light, had given him what he described as considerable of a jolt. He had not found it until evening, and had instantly galloped forth into the dark, not knowing what he might find at Still Hunt Spring. Then Madonna is a thief, I sighed. Oh, he's a thief, all right, said Scipio easily. But it made me very sad. I closed my eyes and could see McDonough as he stood by my horse, embarrassed, reaching out his hand for that envelope with my verses in it. I slept more soundly and longer even than on the preceding night. Scipio, after his hard ride, slept like me. We did not wake until the sun was high and warm. After breakfast, it was the last morsel we had between us, I took a final drink at the gentle and lovely pool where I had undergone such terrible emotions, and we rode slowly and silently down the long line of trees toward the exit of the valley. Suddenly the sorrel jerked his head up, stopped stiff with a snort, and began to tremble. Ahead of us there, from the branch destined for me, hung a dead man, McDonough. This they had done while we overslept by the spring at the upper end of the valley. They had surprised him coming to his cache. Scipio and I sat still for a while. A wind in the branches now set the body slightly swaying. It seemed worse when it moved. It turned halfway round, and I saw its eyes. I think, couldn't we bury it, I said. Scipio shook his head. It's left there for some of his partners to see. Well, 
I think we might close the eyes. That's no harm, said Scipio, if you want. Yes, I do want. So we dismounted. Yes, cards were all McDonough knew how to read. No one had ever taught him anything. This was his first lesson. There, said Scipio, that does look better. Then we rode away from Still Hunt Spring. End of chapter 5, part 2